0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Today's episode, we're delighted to bring you audio from 2010's Pastoral Refreshment Conference, where Dick Dowsett brought a series of messages on Philippians and joy in the Lord. Today's episode is the message, Joy When Plans Go pear shaped At the beginning of this recording, there is some small interference from another electronic device, but please stay tuned as the beeping does stop after just a few seconds. We hope that you enjoy this episode.
1: I want to begin by reading the Word of God to you. I've been asked to do three studies in Philippians on the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I'll do my best, but it's more important to read the Word and take that in and even certainly than to listen to me.
2: So I want to read from Philippians 1 from verse 3.
1: Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what's best. I may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the Gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ
2: is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice. For I know
1: that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That's the Word of God. That's the bit that you can trust completely. The rest is my ideas, which it's your responsibility to weigh against the scriptures. And if you see it there, then you better do as
2: you're told, because it is the word of God.
1: I have some mixed feelings about the title that I chose, Joy When Plans Go Pear Shape. This business about the 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 joy when plans go pear shape. Um, I confess that that's rather a sexist way of putting it. My wife has gone pear-shaped, and I have gone rather more like a melon, so that... (laughs) My problem these days is that if I... my my waist is bigger than my backside, so it's difficult to keep my trousers up, but... So I apologize if you're upset with this idea of plans going pear-shaped, but I didn't think about it until after I passed it on to Marcus, and he didn't seem to have any problem with it, but then he wouldn't, would he, at his shape. (laughs) (laughs) But is this matter of, of joy when things don't turn out the way that you think that they jolly well ought to have done? I was at a conference a bit like this some years ago, and there was a guy who was a university lecturer in Indonesia, trying to bring something of the good news of the gospel to a particular people group who called themselves Christians, but all dealt with the spirits of the dead at the same time. I remember him sitting on the bed and looking me straight in the eye and said to me, I have just wasted the last eight years of my life. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? One time in in Beijing, I met a group of house church pastors in a Private room in a restaurant. I'm not sure how private it was. Halfway through the meeting, they moved us to another private room further upstairs. I didn't know whether this was away from the bugging system or nearer to it, and I was a bit scared. But as I was ministering the word, one of the, one of the house church pastors just began to cry and cry and cry. And I went over, took time out to talk to him.
2: He said, I've had enough. I just can't take any more. And sometimes it's like that as well, isn't it? The last weekend I was ministering at a Chinese church conference,
1: and there was a woman there who had an extremely demanding job. And as a sideline, she was ministering in this church. And she said to me, I'm nearly at my wit's end in my work and there isn't anybody in the congregation who can remotely understand or stand by me or care for me or minister to me and I think I'm going to change churches. And sometimes it gets like that as well, doesn't it? There's another friend of mine who after years in social services decided to get ordained and
2: then everything went wrong in his life. Then he sits down and says, I think I got my guidance wrong, don't you? And here's Paul writing, as he says, in chains. And he says, verse 3, I thank my God. And he says
1: in verse 18, I rejoice, and yes, I will continue to rejoice. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? Because for Paul, things have gone wrong. His plans, let's face it, have been wrecked his ministry was not turning out in the way that he hoped that it would do.
2: And yet he still has deep joy. And I want to get there somehow, and I want to look at this passage and
1: see, what was it that made him tick, that made him able to cope when things fell apart in quite the way that they did for Paul at this stage in his life and ministry? And the first thing you find as you look at Paul in this is that he knew that the work didn't all depend on him. Sometimes in church, those of us that do things feel that we're juggling with too many balls at once. And somehow we've got to keep them all in the air or the whole lot is going to fall apart. And, and, And Paul is somehow delivered from that because he knows that it was God who'd begun the work in Philippi. He began a good work in you, he says to them. Now, of course, Sir Paul began a good work in Philippi, hadn't he? I mean, he'd gone to a prayer meeting, it turned out to be a ladies' prayer meeting, and so he ran a sort of compressed alpha course, or perhaps some of you think it was Christianity Explored. Um, (laughs) I'll leave you to argue that out if you've got nothing better to do. But But he runs that course there. He did it. And then he delivered a demonized girl who told fortunes through the power of the spirits, yes? I mean, not because he was specially into that sort of thing, but because it was really getting up his nose, having this girl running after him, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. I mean, you have that for two days, and you're going to do something special, aren't you?
2: And the demon is cast out. And he counseled a jailer. And run a late night baptismal class. Paul did a lot of work in Philippi. But it wasn't the sort of work that
1: sometimes ministry seems to be where you're trying to make sort of people in whom there's no spiritual life dance, is it? This was, this was work that, where God switched them on. God switched on Lydia and, and, and she could listen in the sense that you long that people will listen when you're preaching. And when he says, in the name of Jesus, come out, she was delivered from the demon. And I mean, let's face it, that, that business in the prison in Philippi, it was a total set-up job, wasn't it? I mean, you know, as Paul sort of suddenly, you know, deciding he's going to sing all the Kendricks, he knows, in the middle of the night. And the jailer's listening, and everybody's listening, and then the Lord really shakes everybody up in a big way. And you've got a suicidal jailer asking just the right question at the right time. What must we do to be saved? I mean, people don't do that every day, do they? But when God set it up, it's absolutely amazing. And Paul acknowledges that it was a set-up job by God. He had done all these things. And he says, that work in Philippi, it's God's work, not mine. Now, yes it's yours, but it's God's and it's 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 this same model that you get all through the scripture of that that those of us that are parents understand when you have a small child that says, Please may I help? And your heart sinks. (laughs) And they have such a wonderful sense of achievement that has stretched your patience to the limit that has meant that the job isn't as well done as you would have done it on your own, that has probably meant that you have much more clearing up to do, and that you probably have to do the job again later. I mean, sometimes I think when I think I'm doing great work for God, I bet God feels like that about working with me. (laughs) it does get it in perspective doesn't it this this wonderful heavenly father who is so interested in child father bonding that he's prepared for all the efficient inefficiency and the frustration of doing it together with us and he does it together with Paul and Paul really does work in Philippi but when he looks at it it's, it's my father's work it's his and because it's God's work, he could trust him to complete it. And that's so important. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. When I was a junior missionary in the Philippines, this was the first verse that I was told to learn in Filipino. And I had to learn it. Because we who do our two pennyworth here and there in Christian ministry are here today and gone tomorrow. I mean, you know, you may be a Jim Phillip who stays about 30 years in one parish, but you're still in terms of eternity here today and gone tomorrow. But we have a God who can be trusted to complete the work. There are two quiz programs on the BBC, isn't there? There's one that you get when you're waiting for the news and you've turned on too early. And that woman who really gives me the pip says, Time's up, I can't complete the question. But mastermind is a bit more superior, isn't it?
2: I've started, so I'll finish. That's God. That's God. He says, i
1: have finish. He who began a work will finish it until you're done. Not just until you're done, but until that lot you're working with are done. That's our God, isn't it? A God who's committed to complete. I mean, I don't very often see wonderful things happening when I'm, I'm ministering, but every now and again people get in touch with me these days in a way that makes it wonderfully worthwhile being an antique. And they say, do you remember that sermon you preached 40 years ago? And you say, no. Uh, Or you remember, it was that dreadful time in Oxford, where the OIQ president was approached afterwards by the recording man and said, shall we keep it? And he said, no, scrap it. (laughs) In front of me. (laughs) And then somebody gets in touch 40 years later and says, do you remember that sermon? You thought... Could I forget it? <laughs> he says, that's when I began my Christian life. Let me tell you what God has done since. Now, now, seriously, this is, this is what we're about. You can't finish the work. You're a little boy working with a Heavenly Father, a wee lass working with a Heavenly Father. And he lets you put in your two-penny worth, but he who begins a work brings it to completion. We can't do these things. You don't need to act as though you've got to. That's God's job. It's not part of your job description
2: to finish the work. It cannot be. We don't last long enough. We haven't got the energy.
1: The other thing you notice in terms of it's God's work is because it's God's work Paul could trust him to mobilize others. I often come back to the Elijah syndrome, you know, I mean Elijah after he's just had that really fantastic success when he's called down fire from heaven and it worked. You know, you don't do it every day, do you? You have suddenly seen a fantastic answer to prayer and then a woman, granted it's a powerful woman, says, you've had it, mate. And he goes running away, and even after he's been fed with angel cake and been given a good night's sleep by an angel, he still says to the Lord, I'm the only one left, and they're going to do me in. And God comes and whispers in his ear, and still he says, I'm the only one left, and they're going to do me in. You get that sort of Elijah syndrome anyway? It's interesting, I think, Paul did. You look at chapter 2 and verse 21, and he says, everyone looks after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the most horrible verse describing New Testament Christianity, isn't it? They're all selfish. And Paul's almost at an Elijah moment there, it seems to me. But actually, when he stops and reflects, he knew, knew that God had given him partners in Philippi. Partnership with the locals from day one of his time there. He could never say in Philippa, I've got no one to share with. I've got no one to do it with. You know, I mean, Lydia wouldn't take no for an answer. She said, you're going to make my home the base for your mission, aren't you? And it's translated, she wouldn't take no for an answer. She got people that she belonged with. It always used to worry me when I met missionaries. who said, there's no one I can have fellowship with here. And all they meant was, there's no one like me. Now, sometimes there's truth in that, isn't it? We, we do need special mates. I mean, even Jesus needed, uh, you know, Peter and James and John. They, he was thick as thieves with them. They were a different level of sharing. You know, my, my, my son's in ministry in Clubmore in the east side of Liverpool. And I notice, you know, he finds a lot of his backup encouragement from a, a, a sort of order of mission sort of thing, uh, linked up with the Archbishop of York and, you know, the sort of, sort of more new wine type Anglicans. But I mean, he's got that, but I mean, Paul is saying here, not, I've got my sort of converted Pharisees sort of circle that I feel secure with. He says, God's given me partners with this lot as well. These buddies of mine in ministry and improving the Lord. You see, God didn't expect Paul to do every aspect of ministry in Philippi, and he doesn't expect us to, where he's placed us either. It's God's work, not yours. Secondly... You find that Paul learnt to enjoy the family of God. Verses 7 and 8 talk about this, don't they? (laughs) Sounds almost sort of over the top, doesn't it? I mean, Paul seems to be sort of rather more expressive than the average Scottish male. I, I live in Glasgow. You know, where a woman once in Scotland said to her husband, we've been married for 40 years and you've never told me that you love me. And he thought for a moment and said, well, I'll tell you when I don't.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but Paul's not like that. He's sort of, you know, a bit more heart on his sleeve, isn't he? He talks about the way he feels for them in verse 7. He talks about, I
2: long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is interesting, isn't it?
1: He's a man who was raised not to share anything important with women, but he enjoyed partnership in ministry with Lydia. He was a man proud of his status as a free man, but he could appreciate and enjoy slave Christians. He was a man who was once pharisaically Jewish, who could do the work with a Greek, or maybe he was an Italian who'd beaten him up in prison. That's magic, isn't it? I mean, Holy Spirit magic, magic in the sense that C.S. Lewis uses it. It is is just quite extraordinary. Uh, And so you find that Paul gives his heart to these Greeks in in Philippi. Now that's very risky, isn't it, to give your heart to people? And and Paul found it, it risky, and I mean... 2 Corinthians just aches with his hurt at the way that he does this and they don't respond for example 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 we've spoken freely to you Corinthians and open wide our hearts to you we're not withholding our affection from you but you're withholding yours from us as a fair exchange I speak to you as my children open wide your hearts also he didn't feel specially loved but he gave himself in love for these people. But at Philippi he gave himself in love and and out of it came joy, didn't it? Not only joy, but help and money as well, actually. But real help, I mean real bonding, real 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 familiness. I mean these are extraordinary things that happen. I can remember when the Chinese orphan in the Philippines gave his first month's salary to pay for my son's medical things when he was fighting for his life in a hospital in Manila? I mean, how could somebody do that? It was this sort of Holy Spirit sort of love bonds that came. And this happened for Paul in in Philippi. Now, of course, familiness is threatened. The Lord gives it, and the devil tries to take it away. So that in chapter 4, you've got a problem in the church with Euodia and Syntyche, and that's just not being able to get on. They're sisters. They're being used of God,
2: but they can't get on. It is contested. But familiness is a Christian given. There's a friend of mine in Beijing who is one of the most powerful businessmen
1: I know. He's recently been headhunted by four different Fortune 50 companies in the world.
2: used to be the chief elder in a church I worked with sometime. But I was working for him in
1: October as he ran a conference to disciple senior businessmen, Chinese and foreign, in Beijing. It was a wonderful time. I had this heartache because I knew that John couldn't stand the guts of the church that he used to be with and was doing his own thing. The other day he wrote to me and said, I have repented of my attitude to my family in Christ. Christians are always difficult to love,
2: but I realize I've got to do it. I was so excited. Because
1: you see, proving God's grace is not something we're supposed to do on our own. God wants to be generous to us, but all of us get screwed up at times in different areas where we're not quite sure that God can do that for us, because for goodness sake, we don't deserve it. And we do get into that sort of twist where we feel, well, we we really ought to deserve it, and God probably won't if we don't deserve it, And, and somehow... Paul said, your partners in grace, in defending and all this business with the gospel, you you are proving the Lord with me. You are taking hold of God for me. Uh, And and, and this sort of proving the grace of God for one another was was something that happened with, with baby Christians. Whether they were sophisticated and upmarket like Lydia or, or bottom of the pile dropouts like the slave girl or or just roughnecks like the jailer, they were people who could take hold of the grace of God for Paul. Now I find that very significant. This take I mean I do more preaching than most in our church. But but when my when my daughter was critically ill with a brain tumour, several of the folk in the church wondered whether I was going to be able to pray anymore. Now, actually, it wasn't difficult for me to pray then. It was actually a better prayer time than usual. But one of the folk had me said, don't worry if you can't pray, We're, we're, we're holding on to God for you just now. That's kind of special. Is, is church working properly, and I mean, we're not a great church, you know, we're not one of these ones you read about in the books, you know, ten wonderful churches sort of stuff. <laughs> we're talking about ordinary Christians, and, and, and Paul enjoys the family of God, and his enjoyment doesn't come from an unrealistic view of these jolly Christians. He knew that they were pretty ignorant. He knew that they lacked discernment. He knew about their impurity and their failure to be holy. And that brings me to the third little thing that I think about their joy, and that is, he didn't despair about their immaturity. He prayed for their growth. There is something difficult about working with Christians haven't got their act together, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, every now and again we pretend we're not part of that lot. (laughs) Uh, And he doesn't despair. He still gives himself to them, but it's not. It's earthed. It's realistic. I'm going to pray that God will do something special for this lot. And and I love the way that he prays in verses 9 to 11. He prays for more love for them. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. It's a funny sort of phrase, love with knowledge and depth of insight. It's not the sort of things you think about always in relation to boom, boom, boom type love, is it? But he prays for more love so that they will want to know more about this God and please him. Isn't it? That's this, your knowledge will grow. Every now and again, don't you? You meet meet somebody who's become a new Christian, and they can't put the Bible down, you know. And you think to yourself, "Cool, I wish I could get that back." You know, but there's sort of avid reading and excitement of it. I mean, my 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 one of my grandchildren has just learnt to read, and he's he's so excited and almost compulsive about it. And 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 uh, Rachel said. He, he, he's read the children's Bible from cover to cover. He's so excited about it. Now, his, his younger sister said, oh, I don't want another Bible story. He uh, says, yes, it's good. And, and it's just so exciting when you see people, whether they're little or big, that, that suddenly get excited. I love the Lord. I just want to find out more. Don't you reckon? But then he says, "I don't want you just to find out more. I want you to work out how this a practically how this practically applies to their lives in terms of God's will,
2: the love that leads to depth of insight." Years ago, Rose had the joy of leading a Filipino woman to the Lord. Uh,
1: who in the Philippines had attempted and botched an abortion with a violent partner who subsequently left her. There's no legalized abortion in the Philippines, so it was botched and the baby was born and became a constant reminder of guilt to her until almost with a bunion-like experience, she had the bundle on her back roll down the hill as she came to Christ. A little after that, she got some work, and she said, um, she said, this is, this is my salary. Um, could you put it to something so some other, other people could find Jesus as well? She said, I read somewhere in the Bible about first fruits, and I think probably this is it, isn't it? He thought, know, stow me. <laughs> I mean, really, stow me, you know. Uh, and you see, and I, I mean, when I went to Asia, I, I panicked because I realised I couldn't afford to get sick for the first time in my life. You know, there's no NHS. And whatever you think about it, it's jolly good when you get sick and you haven't got any money. Any Americans needing to listen? Um, <laughs> <laughs> But you see, when you work in the Philippines and they're in the congregation, and I didn't know there's a woman whose husband has left her and she's got a sort of average Filipino family of 12 children and she's on her own as the sole bread or rice winner. And you're talking glibly about seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things like food and clothing that you're worried about will be added as well. And you watch absolutely gobsmacked as the Lord makes her see how it works in her life. Yeah? It's sort of love of the Lord that leads to insight Did you, you know? or you get there a bit further back uh, when, I, when I was a, a, a wee boy I, 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 I led a parish mission in Bootle church called St Athanasius with its motto Contra Mundum <laughs> which the oldies can laugh about and the younger ones that didn't do Latin it's against the whole world
3: <laughs>
1: and Good grief. And there was this plumber who became a Christian, and and, and he wasn't quite sure that anything had changed since he'd become a Christian, but he said, uh, but I do want my mum to become a Christian as well. I thought, well, that was quite an interesting change. And then he said, um, when I go to work, they tell all these blue jokes. And he said, uh, I don't like them anymore, but I don't know what to do. You see, you love the Lord, but you don't know what to do. And he's saying, well, I want that sort of love that's going to think it through until I get the insight, I can see how it's going to work. And he prayed for that. And he prayed for them that they discern what's best. We need to discern what's best because we haven't got time for everything, have we? I had a very interesting insight. In January, I I was asked for the first time since I've been to Scotland to join the, the, the... the Reformed Minister's fraternal in, in, in Creef. And, and it was actually much more of a joy than I expected. Sorry, I...
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let me it, it was lovely. But I was sitting talking with, with, with a, a friend of mine who's, who's a, a Free church minister, which isn't the same as a Free Church minister in, in, uh, in England. A free church minister in England just means that, you know, well, you know what it means. It's sort of F-I-E-C and Baptist and Congregational and goodness knows what all. And, uh, sorry, I was a free church member in England once too. Uh, and But the Free Kirk in Scotland, I mean, you sing only the psalms in dreadful poetry. Iniquities I must confess conspire against me do. And that sort of poetry. <laughs> Which is really frightening when you see people for whom English is a second language singing it. (laughs) 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 And this free coat minister was talking, we were talking together about what had happened in the Church of Scotland over my lifetime. You see, when I was a, a, a wee boy, Eric Alexander went into the ministry in Scotland and in those days you could put the Church of Scotland ministers who were evangelical into a telephone kiosk now there are hundreds of them and all over Scotland parishes have been reclaimed for the gospel and so David this free Kirk man he said I didn't go into a mixed bag set up I went into a pure church the Freekirk." but he said here they are they've gone into this they've claimed all this ground so he said you knew the devil would do something to distract them wouldn't he so what do you do? This is David's commentary. He said, The Liberals installed in one of the most fanatically liberal churches that nobody's bothered about in Aberdeen a gay couple in ministry. Why? Because they wanted the Evangelicals to leave the Church of Scotland. They've already claimed three or four hundred parishes. They'd like them to, to quit now. And David said to me, They fell for it hook, line and sinker. And now this is their bee in their bonnet, not reclaiming parishes and leading people who've never heard the gospel to the Lord, but getting uptight about what's happening in a church that's been liberal for generations and hasn't preached the gospel and indeed has mocked the gospel. And they're focusing on that and not focusing on what they can claim. Now, you may disagree with David's analysis, but do you see what he's trying to do? He's not trying to say it's wrong to be concerned about this, He's trying to say, what's the best thing that we can do at the moment? And I found that very interesting, because I find in my ministry, I focus often on things that are good, but they're not necessarily the best. And learning to focus on what's best is recognizing that the devil can sidetrack us. But learning to focus on what's best is in the little things as well, isn't it? Not just the big questions of guidance. How do I deal with that grudge? What's the best way of dealing with that? How do I handle a family row? I need to discern what's best in that, don't I? How do I cope with a, a naughty child or, or a teenager who's decided that he doesn't want to come to church with us anymore? How do I make ends meet in the way things are now? And discerning what's best is tremendously important because I want you to understand God's best is not a plan fixed in concrete and once you've missed it, you're on to second best for the rest of your life. Amazing how many Christians think that. I've been amazed at people that have wrestled with depression for years because they reckon they missed a turning way back and now it's a write-off. God's plan is not like that. It's more like... He is a coach who has a game plan that rides with the surprises that the opposition throws at us, as well as with the team's mistakes and injuries. So it's worth coming back home to a God like that, isn't it? It's worth it for them in your church. And it's worth it for you and me as well, isn't it? And finally, in this utterly realistic session, he prays that they will be delightfully holy. I like the way that he puts it, that they may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Isn't it nice when believers say, that's right. Filled with fruits of that's rightness. Is what he's longing for. Yes, of course there are the, now, the thou shalt nots of the Christian life, if people are going to be pure and blameless. But we're not aiming at negative, empty, boring lives. But something that is a great
2: and winsome advert for Jesus.
1: Why did Paul pray? For the Christians who hadn't got it all taped, that he was trying to work with. Because despite everything that went wrong, he knew that he belonged with a prayer answering God. I like that verse 19, don't you? For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, what has happened to me, will turn out for my deliverance. I do actually believe that prayer makes a difference. There's a little bit more. Can I take a little bit more? You can blame him. The fourth thing I want to share with you about Paul's joy is that he learnt to move with God's surprising overruling. And we want to see this in verses 12 and 13. I was a young man, I was brought up on the King James Version, and uh, when I studied theology at Cambridge, they did the RSV, so I read the King James Version for my quiet time, because that was spiritual, and I read the RSV when I was studying liberal theology. Uh, But the King James Version says, all things work together for good for them that love God, who are called according to his purposes. But all things don't work together for good. Some things work very mysteriously and very horribly. That's why it's nicer to go to the more modern versions that say in all things God works for good. He doesn't sit and watch with his arms folded. He's active. He's working. He's on the job. When Paul went to Philippi, he experienced three disappointments that led to opportunities that he might not have chosen. I can't imagine that when Paul went to the prayer meeting, he would have thought that it would only be women there. I mean, this was the guy that was raised as a child. Oh Lord, I thank thee that thou hast not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. It was only women, he might have said. And that's where the work began. He might not have chosen that, but that was God's opportunity. He certainly wouldn't have chosen the publicity of a demonized girl. With the spirit world trying to get in on the act and make the disciples syncretistic. These, servants are ser- these men are servants of the Most High God, showing you the way to be saved.
2: Remember who told you? It was the spirit in the demonized girl. The right answer. Not what he'd have chosen. But an extraordinary opportunity to demonstrate the power of Jesus. And then beaten up in prison. And again, a great opportunity.
1: And so he writes here in verses twelve and thirteen, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. I love that, don't you? Can you imagine? Here's Paul, he's in prison and he's handcuffed to two guards. So they really want to keep this guy secure and, and he sort of looks at them and says, Well, they can't go away. <laughs> Do you know why I'm here in prison? Well, it's because of Jesus. Do you know who he is? Oh, you don't know. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. You've got a, got a few moments, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, on an eight-hour shift, probably. Or, or No, in those days, it would have been longer, wouldn't it? It wasn't part of the European Union, after all.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so there they stand, and, and, and he said, Oh, praise the Lord, they're going to change shifts. Two more. Now, isn't that extraordinary? I love this sort of, I believe in the sovereignty of God, so I'm going to see what God, how God's going to play this. There's something about that in this, isn't there? I think that's absolutely, I mean, I can remember an old boy that we used to go and visit in, in, in Glasgow. I mean, I use old boy in the Scottish sense because he was in his nineties. Um, and this, this, this guy, he, he says to, said one day, um, I'm asked the Lord for another two weeks, because the fellow in the bed over there, I think probably he will be converted in the next two weeks. So, I, I just don't want to die until he's done. And you think, stack me, he's dying of cancer in hospital, but, but he's seeing that God's put him beside somebody who needs Jesus, no? I remember crying with a colleague of mine uh, in AMF, when one of his disciples in in central Thailand had been framed for armed robbery, which he hadn't done, and sentenced to eight years in jail in chains for a crime that he had never committed. And Prasit said, oh, this is interesting. I wouldn't have thought of evangelizing these people before. But he led a whole load of them to the Lord, and he actually started a Bible school in the prison. And when it was established, he he, he got released early.
3: <laughs>
1: I think of a former colleague of mine working in Shanghai, and he said, I used to think that Chinese officials were an absolute pain. They took so much time, and they were keeping me away from the work. And then he said, and one day I woke up to the fact that Chinese officials need the gospel as much as the ordinary Chinese do. There is a right and a wrong way to say to God why did you allow this
2: to happen? Isn't that? You can stamp your foot and say if I were God I wouldn't do anything as stupid as this.
1: We do sometimes think that arrogantly, don't we? One of my children once prayed in family prayers Lord Jesus, you're rotten.
2: That was real prayer. Sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing, doesn't it? But let's look,
1: because sometimes when it doesn't go our way, it is God revising the target plans. Once in North Thailand this American couple came to me and they sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and they said we got together a beautiful team that could really work together and we were going to do this work and one after another they haven't been able to come and God has torn up our plans. And trying to be gentle which I'm not always good at I said
2: you're going to need the local Thai believers now aren't you? It was a different strategy. But this was what God was doing here.
1: He also not only learnt that he could move with God when from his agenda it hadn't worked, but that he he realised that in the agenda that he had, that he wasn't actually indispensable. He says, Do you know, he says, God can use the locals as well. And, and that was an amazing thing because of my chains most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly I like that when I was a junior missionary in the Philippines supposed to be learning how to speak the language they sent me down to work amongst farmers and fishermen because they, they didn't have any education so they couldn't speak the language of education in the Philippines which is English so you know, if I'd been in Manila and I'd said what is this in Filipino, they'd have replied in English, let me explain where where I was learning it, I would say what is this in Filipino and they would reply in Filipino, it's a what's it or a thingy jig so you didn't know anymore but at least you were still speaking Filipino <laughs> and I had a very competent what in those days was called senior min- missionary, it was a sort of you know, like assistant minister as opposed to associate and, and, uh, and senior minister or, 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 or if you can think Anglican, you know, sort of vicar and junior curate. Anyway, the senior minister was rather competent at everything and I can remember we used to visit this, walk across the rice fields on these dreadful, very slippery, muddy pathways that were about as wide as my foot with sort of stinking mud on either side. Eh? It's quite a challenge, and you get there and you sit down in this farmhouse. And he always used to say to this old farmer, "Will you, would you read the word?" You see, oh no, he said, "My eyes are, are too dim, I cannot." So, well, would you pray? No, no, you pray so much better. And then one day, the senior missionary was sick, so I went on my own. I mean, my Tagalog at that stage was awful. I once told a congregation of old women and young people, you must give birth again, this is the only way you're going to get saved. (laughs) 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 So when I said to this old boy, would you read the scripture?
2: Yes, of course. Brother, would you pray? Prayer was beautiful, at least what I understood
1: of it was. (laughs) this prayer was beautiful. I thought, praise the Lord, feel sick. (laughs) This brother can, but he can't when there's this, you know, foreigner with all his degrees and his magnificent local language and his flowery, you know, sort of, you know, these oratorical prayers that some pastors pray. But he could pray real prayer. Uh, and suddenly he could prove the Lord in that sort of situation. And, and Paul is able to say here with this, this beautiful wisdom, I'm not actually dispensable. He's good, is Paul. But I'm not actually dispensable. And most of the brothers and sisters, not just somebody has filled in the gap, but <laughs> locals have discovered that God can use them too. Just one more. The last thing I want to say that it seems to me in this passage shows you why Paul could rejoice was because he refused to get sad up. He refused to get sour. Look at verses 15 and 18 just briefly, will you? Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some suppose that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains.
2: Sheep stealing is an ugly business, isn't it? Critics can
1: really hurt us. People who don't work in partnership with us but are rivals or work against us, they hurt. And this sort of behaviour is, let's face it, it is ungodly. It's sinful behaviour. But Paul here is recognising that God uses flawed Christians. Like you and me. Like Paul, for that matter. And so he focuses on the one important positive. He said, Christ is preached. Jesus is being talked about. Well, hurrah for that. Paul wrote to the Italian Christians in Rome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome
2: evil with good. Peter wrote about Jesus, that he said Christ
1: suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered,
2: he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We need to recognize that part of Satan's strategy for those
1: who count in different types of ministry is to sour them up. Make them bitter. It's part of Satan's strategy. You become bitter, you're tired all the time, aren't you? You become bitter, and you, you can't pray anymore. You become bitter, and you find that your mind just keeps coming back to these second best things. Yes, sheep stealing does matter, but it's the second best focus when I was a young Christian they still sung that extraordinary I suspect it's a Sankey count your blessings name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done how corny or what does sound a bit naff, doesn't it? But actually it's quite sensible.
2: Paul here refuses to focus on that which will take away his joy in the Lord. This
1: is not escapism. It is a Christian focus. As he puts it in chapter 4, and we come to that on the day after tomorrow, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true,
2: Whatever's excellent, think about these things. Well, those were the five things I came up with. I'm not going to do a nice tidy ending because I've run out.
1: But maybe there are bits there that will make
2: sense for you. Let's just talk to God, shall we? Living God, here we are. group of people that you've kindly in different ways
1: asked to do jobs with you. That as your little ones we come back to you and say we're glad it's your work, Father.
2: We're glad you've asked us to do things together with you. Thank you for your patience in that. Thank you for the bonding we get from time to time with you as we do it with you. Thank you for your willingness to use us when you could manage perfectly well without us. Lord, help us to trust you to complete it. Help us to believe in you as a mobiliser when we feel we're carrying it all on our own. Lord, we thank you that as we come here together,
1: you've made us part of your family where we can give ourselves to one another.
2: Give us the courage to do that. And to be those who love your family. And we pray that you'll help us where that's contested back home. where we feel we're pouring ourselves out and nobody really cares about us. And yet we ask you to help us to continue like Jesus to give ourselves to sinners. Lord, there's lots that's not right with our churches. Lots that's disappointing. but we are so glad that you've opened the door for us to talk to you about it. And that because you answer prayer, we can be hopeful. Lord, we pray about those situations where it hasn't panned out in the way that we thought that it would. Help us to, as it were, ride on the wings of your sovereignty and see how you're rewriting the program for us now. Help us to believe that you have not been beaten by what's gone wrong. And to be able to get with your new agenda. And lastly, Lord, we pray about those situations where it gets on top of us and we just get angry and fed up with people. And we would apologize to you that though you've given us your spirit so that we would overflow in love, we sometimes hate people and get bitter in our spirits. And we pray that you will move by your Spirit and help us to sort that out. And in all of this, Lord, we bow before you as those, your little children, who so need you. You don't come as those who have any right to anything. You don't owe us anything, Lord. But you invite us to prove your grace. And
1: we pray that even in this time together, you will help us to take hold of you for one another and prove you in that way. For Jesus' sake. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find us on any major social media platform at Living Leaders or visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll also find more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. God bless.